In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until that day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when, they, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken from up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. My name's Nate. Good to be with you this morning. Um, we're doing a series in the Apostles' Creed this summer. And to do that, what I want you guys to do, would you guys go ahead and read with me? Uh, the Apostles' Creed will be up on the screen as we get going this morning. So here we go. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You know, um, we've been saying since the beginning of this series that whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, that every one of us has a creed. Every one of us lives by something, a set of guidelines, the things that guides and directs our lives. And we've been unpacking the Apostles' Creed because this is the earliest of the Christian confessions. It grew up in a grassroots confessions of faith, and so each week we've been looking at a different aspect of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, and this morning, we're in this part where it talks about Jesus ascending into heaven, being seated at the right hand of God. What, is, what does that mean? Well, let me put it this way. Uh, our passage opened in the book of Acts, and, and it's a startup, per se. Um, let's put it this way. Let me go back for a moment. April 1st, 1976, in Los Altos, California, two college dropouts start hanging out in a garage. They have a vision for a new way of how people might view computers. You know their names? Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, right? You know, here's the deal. We love the story of startups, do we not? And in fact, you know, 
particularly the ones that seem to have no chance. Uh, these are two college dropouts working out of a garage. If I was there, I'm not sure I would invest in it, right? And yet today, 1.4 billion active users. Um, I don't know if I'm right, but 260 billion in revenue per year, something like that. Um, that is a startup. In our passage in Acts 1, it's another startup. It's the start of the birth of the church, and it would be an understatement to say that a small sect, which was persecuted by the Romans, would by the fourth century become the dominant religion in the Roman Empire. And of course, this growth has continued to stay. And over the years, there's been a variety of people that have had, like, asked the question, how did that happen? A lot of different reasons, a lot of different answers. But suffice to say, one commentator put it this way, the reason the early church had such tremendous purpose and confidence is what happens at the end of this passage in Acts 1. And it stated in the creed that Jesus ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. And let me just give you one reason why this matters today for us. There's a lot. Today, by all statistics, uh, the church is declining in the West. In 2000, two out of five Americans identified as Christians. In 2020, it's now one out of five. Uh, Gen Z, that's the nine to 24-year-olds, they're three to four more times more agnostic than any other previous generation. Now, let me be clear. I don't know what God's going to do the next 20, 40 years in the church in the West. I'm not going to submit to you that if we just get this aspect of the creed right, it's going to change things, but it would be foolish not to consider it. Because this statement that Jesus ascended into heaven, it is the, one of the primary reasons why the church was so explosive in its growth. It gave it great purpose and confidence. So we're going to see four things about the ascension today. Four headings. Royalty, intimacy, sovereignty, and advocacy. So, let me pray, and we'll get in. Father, we thank you uh, this morning for your word. Lord, attend to our hearts today with the fears that we have, with the guilt that we have, with the shame that we have, even the hope that we have. Would you attend to us today with this news that you have ascended? Give us grace to understand it. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, let's look at this last part of the passage in verses 9 through 11. This is under royalty here. Um, We see this. And when he had said these things, this is Jesus, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, 
Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, notice a couple things. One is the disciples, they're confused. Uh, they had just asked Jesus, Jesus, let's talk about this kingdom. What's going to happen now? And all of a sudden, Jesus gets lifted up. They're confused. We're confused. They aren't sure what to make of this. But, this, but there's two angels that explain it. Then they say this, Jesus has gone into heaven. Now, what does that mean? Uh, N.T. Wright puts it this way, that heaven is the control room of earth. It's the place where instructions are given. Let's put it this way. Think of a boardroom or a command center. When the, when, when the angels say, this is where Jesus is going, this is where Jesus is going. It's the control room of earth. And it's not just a change of location. It's also a change of status. The Apostle Paul would write this in his letter to the Ephesians. Look at what it says in Ephesians 1, 20 through 23. That he speaking of the Father, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Notice what Paul writes there. He's saying Jesus is not just in the control room of earth. He's now seated at the right hand. And that, that image is one of power and authority. Let's put it this way. Jesus is not a middle manager, right? We got some middle managers here, you know, like there's three people above you and four people below you, and you got to somehow navigate and try to work things through with limited power. Jesus is not a middle manager. Jesus is at the top of the org chart. And what's happening here then is Acts 1, we see Jesus being lifted up. This is one thing. It's the public enthronement of Jesus. You know, in London... If we went to Westminster Abbey, you would find King Edward's chair. And for 800 years, eight centuries, it's been the place for the coronation of kings and queens. Of and what Acts is showing us is that Jesus has ascended to that position above every rule and authority in the cosmos. To put it in layman terms... The ascension of Jesus means this, that Jesus is in charge. He's in charge. He has all power and he has all authority. You know, this brings up at least a couple for me, like, but what about this? And I want to deal with one right now. The first is, what about authority? You know, let's just be honest for a moment, in our day, People don't like authority. There's a level of distrust of people in authority, of people in positions of authority. And you might be sitting here today going like, well, why, why would I trust Jesus? Particularly related, if he's the top, why would I trust him? Why would I submit to him? 
Well, let me remind you where we've been in the Apostles' Creed and what the Scriptures say. Do you remember where this all got started? Listen to what Paul writes in Philippians 1, speaking about Jesus. He says this, Although Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see where this all began? Jesus, the one who is now in charge, the one who's now on the throne, his path to glory began with the incarnation. And it began and it continued with his humiliation. In other words, how does Jesus use his position? How does he use it? Does he use it to serve himself? He does not. He lays it down to benefit others. Do you see how this subverts our modern, our modern notion of authority being bad? You see, the gospel is not just news about Jesus and his death for our sins. It's not just news about him rising from the dead. It's news that he reigns. There's a passage in Isaiah 52. And in the Greek Septuagint of the Hebrew Scriptures, it uses the word euangelion, gospel. And it's because of that news, it's, it's this, that your God reigns. This is what gave the church such confidence and such purpose in their mission. That Jesus is king. And this ascension has several implications. And the first one is, is intimacy. You know, when Jesus, the eternal son, took on flesh, among other things, he actually had limitations. He could only be in one place at a time. He couldn't be everywhere. But this changes when Jesus ascends into heaven. Uh, let me explain. There's, do you remember the account in John's account where Mary Magdalene finds the risen Christ near the tomb? And there's a scene where she finally recognizes him. And she says these words in John 20. She says, or excuse me, she, she grabs a hold of Jesus. And Jesus says these words, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. It's one of those strange things like, Jesus, why can't she hold on to you? Is there something different about you that that can't happen? And, you know, Keller notes this, that actually there's plenty of other places where Jesus says, no, touch me. Like, touch my side. Touch my hands. See, I'm here. So what's happening there? Well, if you understand what undergirds the phrase, do not hold on to me, it means that Mary is squeezing so tightly she has lost Jesus once, and she does not want to lose Jesus again. And Jesus is saying this, in essence, when I ascend, it doesn't matter where you end up. Where you go, I will be there with you. 
I'll be even closer. And here's, here's why. I'll just, this is, you're going to have to think a little bit with me a little bit, because we have certain constructs about heaven and what it means. We think of heaven as spatially being up, right? I mean, after all, Jesus in the passage was lifted up. But let's be honest, we know the earth is round. So if Jesus lifted up, the other side's down, right? I mean, what's going on there? Theologians have noted that heaven and earth is not necessarily spatially up, but it's really one of different dimensions. It's a, it's a sense of overlapping. Let me give you an example. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen, the first Christian martyr, is being stoned. And as he's being stoned, he gets a vision. And the vision is of Jesus being standing at the right hand of the Father, right in the midst of being stoned. What's happening there? It's this, the thin veil between heaven and earth has been lifted in that moment. And Stephen can see. Or let me give you a more contemporary example. Have you all watched Stranger Things? Some of you have. You all know the upside-down world, right? You know, right, where it just flips on and this, like, it's the exact mirror, but it's much darker, but it's parallel. Of course, that breaks down. Heaven's not like the upside-down world. Maybe it should be the other way around, right? But the dynamic is this, is that heaven and earth, there is a thin veil between heaven and earth relationally. And theologians note that this means while Jesus, when he was in his earthly ministry, was limited to space and time, now, since he has ascended, he can be present simultaneously anywhere and everywhere on earth. In other words, you understand, the ascension of Jesus actually magnifies his ministry. Do you realize how practical that is? Um, we had some friends the last couple of weeks in Ecuador, and of course, some of you may know the strikes that were happening there, um, and they were without food. They were relying on their garden, and uh, there was a moment about three days, two days before the strike kind of ended here, and there was a two-hour window in which they had a kind of a truce, and they said, you can go into town and get what you need and go back. But it was very fraught with, like, what's going to happen? Are we going to, you know, it's just dangerous. And they just talked about each step of the way, continuing just to pray. Jesus, help us. Help us get what we need. And they scrambled some things together. He provided. But don't you understand? That's because of the ascension. They could trust that he reigns and that he's with them. Now, mind you, I'm grateful I can go to Costco two days ago and have everything on the shelves. So he's still with me there. But do you understand how practical and real this is? If you're a Christian, the ascension doesn't mean the loss of intimacy. It means actually the intensification of it. In our passage, you know, Jesus tells them to wait in the city for the Holy Spirit. Wait. It's going to be a gift. It's coming. And in Romans 5, listen to what Paul writes. He says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Even now, do you understand? 
The Holy Spirit actually is here, present, imparting God's love toward you personally. Jesus reigns, and that means the intensification of intimacy, the intensification of his presence, and the intensification of his access that's available. But secondly, but secondly, sovereignty. You know, um, the ascension means that Jesus is king of the world. It means that he is in charge of all that happens here. Look, let's go back for a moment to Ephesians 1 and, and look at what Paul writes here about Jesus. He says this, Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. I said this earlier, it means Jesus is not a middle manager. He's at the highest org chart. But you know in some organizations, sometimes you know the person who's like the highest in the org chart, like they're really not the ones in charge. You know what I mean? It's like there's people below them that really call the shots. That's not the way with Jesus. When it says that he put all things under his feet, it means, it means they're under his control. And what's really unique about this passage is it actually says Jesus is actually directing history, and it says this, over all things to the church. Or in other words, for the church. And do you know what that means? That means if you're a Christian, that means all that is happening in your life, even though you may not understand it, somehow is for your benefit. Even your suffering. You know, Romans 8 it's one of those verses we, you can kind of throw around a lot, but listen to what this says. Paul writes, says, For I know that all things work together for the good of those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. Notice he doesn't say that all things are good. <laughs> he doesn't say that everything that happens to you are, is good. It's saying that all things work for good. It's a really important distinction. It's not that God is the author of evil, but rather that even that he's over it. And actually his intention in your life is to use it to make you more like his son. Um, recently, I've been wading through some particular uh, hardships in my own life, working through some anger and bitterness. And I was meeting with my counselor and one of the things that happened is, is she said this, what is it that God has for you in this? And when she said that, it was a question where it was, she was saying, even though your hardships that you're walking through, it's, it's not that God's okay with all that's happened in this situation. But, but rather, there's a deeper purpose. You know, um, there's a book called The Saint's Knowledge of Christ's Love. It's written by John Bunyan. And he made this observation. He said this, I have often seen that the afflicted are always the best sort of Christians. 
You know, we don't like to see that. We don't like to read that, right? You know, it's this notion that we'd rather have health and success and ease. But what the scriptures are saying is actually it's in the hardships of life that that's where God does his deep work. That actually pain and trial and darkness are actually the places of the greatest amount of growth. The greatest opportunity. Listen, one of the things I've found in this season, and I know that I have not stepped to the depth of what some of you have walked through, but one of the things that's happened is it's made me much less self-reliant. Uh, it's, it's made me less fearful of man. It has, in moments, pressed the gospel of grace into my heart into places I didn't know were darkened. And there have been moments, and it is not every moment, but there have been moments where I have been thankful for it. You see, all that flows from the ascension, that Jesus reigns, that all things are under his feet, that there is purpose, there is purpose in what you're walking through. But fourthly and lastly, the ascension means advocacy. Look at what Hebrews 9.24 says. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. You know, I remember when I was younger, I'd go to a toy store, and there'd be this section of model cars. I always wanted to get those. And whenever I got one, I never finished it. You know, it was like, how do you glue these things together? This is, but it looks so sweet. Like, I want this car in real life, and here's the model, right? The author of Hebrews is showing how the Old Testament sacrificial system and all that was there, it was a model. It was a copy. It wasn't the real thing. That Jesus is the true high priest. And now that he's ascended into heaven... He now represents us before the Father. And here's why that's so important. That God is holy, and we're not. You know, one of the things that tradition says is that on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, when one time a year the high priest would go in to make sacrifices for all the people, there's tradition that says that they would tie a rope to his leg. Because if he died in there, no one was going in there. Because they wouldn't make it out alive. But the idea is this, is that Jesus, the true high priest, has gone once for all. Look at what verse 26 says in chapter 9. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In other words, the ascension means that sin could not separate us from God because it has been paid. Our advocate, our representative is there. 
You know, just a few moments ago, we do this weekly, this confession and assurance. And do you know what that means? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It means this morning as we prayed that confession, it didn't mean that Jesus was at, by the Father's side and say, oh, please, please, just let this one slide. Don't, don't take it out on them. That's not what Jesus was saying. Listen to what 1 John 1, 9 says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And do you understand, why did, why did John write just to forgive us our sins? Why didn't he say, he is faithful and loving to forgive us our sins. Why didn't he say he's, he is faithful and gracious to forgive our sins? No, he says he's just. And here's why. It means when you confess your sins and you rely on Christ, it's something like this. Jesus is saying, Father, I've paid the price for their sin. And therefore, it would be unjust of you to take it out on them, for I have taken it for them. Do you understand what the ascension means? It means if you're feeling guilty this morning or shame, do you, do you understand that you can rest and trust and rely on the one who is your advocate, who represents you before the Father, who has fully paid your debt? And by the way, if you think the Father is unwilling to heed the call of the Son, do you not understand? He's the one who sent the Son. Do you understand how the Father is for you, that the Son is for you? Royalty, Jesus reigns, intimacy, incredible access, sovereignty, advocacy. Don't, don't you see how much is under this notion of the ascension? Do you understand why the church exploded? Because they lived in light of the ascension of Christ. They knew that he was with them. And closer to them than even before. It didn't matter where they landed, he would be with them. They knew that whenever they faced opposition or brokenness in their life, that Jesus was still in control. It was not without a purpose. In fact, it actually was there to make them more like his son. And they knew that even when they failed, when they sinned, when they rebelled, that Jesus would not leave them, but has always stood by their side. They lived with confidence and purpose. Do you have that? Do you know that? Rest, trust, rely, rejoice. He is ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Let's pray. Father, would you work... <laughs> these truths into our lives, into the particular attitudes and moments and memories and weeks to come that we might live in light of this amazing truth that you, Jesus, reign. We thank you for this truth. And we pray now that you would use us as your people in this city to live lives that both demonstrate and declare that this is true. 
And we ask this in your name. Amen.